Should we pay taxes to the government or not? Should conscientious objectors be allowed to shield their tax payments from military spending? Should committed pro-life Christians be allowed to withhold some or all of their taxes as long as the Defense Department reimburses the travel expenses of service members who go across state lines to get access to an abortion? Should the pro-choice residents of states that have restricted access to reproductive health care get a deduction on their taxes because of the lack of services provided where they live? Should churches whose pastors receive six or even seven-figure salaries be exempt from corporate income taxes and state property taxes, just like the churches whose clergy have taken a vow of poverty? When the Pharisees come to ask Jesus about paying taxes, the answer isn't really as obvious as we might expect it to be. Like most issues that lie at the collision of religion and politics, it's complicated. And like Jesus, how we sort it out requires some careful, faithful thinking. At the beginning of this gospel lesson, Matthew lets us know that the religious leaders were out to get Jesus. He tells us that they met and hatched a plot that was designed to ensnare him. So when they find him, they heap upon Jesus the sort of empty flattery that can only serve to set him up to disappoint his audience, and then they spring upon him their trap. Is it lawful, they ask, to pay taxes to the emperor or not? By which they mean, can a Torah observant, sacred law-abiding Jew pay taxes to the unholy Roman Empire or should they refuse as a matter of conscience? It was a question that no rabbi wanted to answer, at least not on the record. If Jesus were to say, yes, faithful Jews are allowed to pay the tax, he would alienate those who believed that no earthly kingdom could take the place of God's reign. The Jewish people had been fighting over that tax for a while. When it was first instituted in the year 6 AD, another Galilean named Judas led an armed religious revolt which despite being put down quickly, remained a cause celebre for Jewish patriots even after Jesus' death. How could anyone pay tribute to a deified Caesar, they asked, and still remain loyal to God? Even Jesus himself had already declared, no one can serve two masters. But on the other hand, if Jesus were to say no, a faithful Jew should not support the empire, he would give his opponents all the evidence they needed to turn him over to the Roman authorities, who would surely execute him as yet another failed Jewish rebel. No matter what he said, Jesus couldn't win, or so they thought. Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? He said to them, show me the coin used for the tax. 
In an instant, Jesus set for them his own double trap. For starters, the coin in question was itself an unholy symbol, a piece of metal that contained the forbidden graven image of the emperor and the blasphemous title that made him a god. That means that having that coin in your pocket was itself an act of deep faithlessness, and to bring it into the sacred courts of the Jerusalem temple was an absolute no-no, kind of like trying to hide a phone in your pocket in second period when the national emergency alert goes off and lets the teacher know you've got it. When Jesus got the Pharisees to produce the coin, he was showing anybody who would pay attention that these so-called religious leaders weren't actually all that committed to their religion after all. But Jesus didn't stop there. Whose head is this and whose title, he asked, twisting the rhetorical knife a little deeper. And when they acknowledged, probably reluctantly, that they belonged to the emperor, Jesus replied with those famous words, then render to Caesar, give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's and to God the things that are God's. Game, set, match. When the, religious, when the religious leaders heard this, they were amazed, and we are amazed too. Jesus had slipped through their trap and managed to ensnare them in one of his own. It was surely a clever answer which had bested his opponents. But I'm not sure how satisfying the answer is 2,000 years later. I'm not sure this is all I want Jesus to say on the matter. Because when it comes to navigating that blurry and often tricky border between what it means to belong to God and yet to belong to this world, I yearn for something more than a clever quotation. After all, what kind of answer did Jesus actually give? In the end, is it lawful to pay the tax or not? Jesus doesn't really tell us. Instead, he invites us to imagine what belongs to God and what belongs to the emperor. But if God is the source of all things, if God is the ruler of heaven and earth, then what belongs to the emperor in the first place? And if everything does belong to God, as I think we're supposed to believe, then why is it the emperor's graven image on the coin in question? Who's actually in charge anyway? Is it God or the Caesar? Ultimately, those who would separate the kingdoms of this world from the kingdom of God are trapped by their own desire to avoid the messiness of how God often works and where God usually shows up. God isn't always to be found in those neat and clean ways that give us simple answers to complicated questions. Sometimes faithfulness isn't as straightforward as an up or down vote. And people who say otherwise probably aren't being faithful. If we want to belong more fully to God's reign, we shouldn't try to escape this world or the powers that belong to it, but instead lean into those messy places and channels through which God's reign is breaking into this life. At its core, I think that's what Jesus' clever response is inviting us to do.
Give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and give to God the things that are God's. That isn't an invitation to live a bifurcated life with allegiances split between heaven and earth. It's an invitation to trust that God's reign is not divorced from the politics of this world, but somehow revealed through them. As such, it is possible for us to use a Roman coin to pay a Roman tax without forgetting that the entire empire is still contained within the kingdom of God. Jesus isn't asking us to confuse the emperor's ungodly ways with the will of God, but to trust that God's authority cannot be thwarted by the affairs of the state, no matter how irreligious that state may be. And if that's true, if we believe that God is still in charge, even when our leaders show little sign of godliness, then that means that how we participate in the earthly affairs always has heavenly consequences. The real question we're supposed to ask ourselves is what does it mean to be faithful to the will and ways of God in a world in which those ways are so often hidden? Jesus shows us that it means not burying our head in the sand or hiding our light under a bushel basket, but using our public lives to pursue God's reign. We know that God is at work in this world. We believe that God's salvation is accomplished not by abandoning this world, but by becoming enmeshed in it, in the word become flesh. God did not take our human nature upon God's self in order to forsake the world, but to transform it. And if God is at work in this world, saving and redeeming that which God has made, then we too are called to lean into that work of transformation. We are a part of this world, but we belong to the reign that is above. And yet that reign, which is not a part of this world, cannot be confined to the heavens. When we see those moments of God's power and presence breaking through into this world, giving us a glimpse of what is to come, we must devote ourselves and our lives fully to them. Whether it's paying our taxes or casting our votes or donating to worthwhile causes or even marching in the streets, our participation in the kingdoms of this world is not a rejection of God's reign, but an opportunity for God's reign to become manifest more clearly through our actions. Give to God the things that are God's while you give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's. In other words, don't expect God to show up in that mythical place that is immune to the influences of this world. Instead, Ask God to help you influence this world in ways that allow God's reign to show up more fully. We are not 
faithful to God by withdrawing from the kingdoms of the earth, but by allowing God to use us to bring God's reign to the earth through those kingdoms. Thy kingdom come, we pray. Thy will be done. Every time we say those words, we offer ourselves more fully into the service of God. As we say those words today, let us do so with the intention not of pulling back from this world, but by leaning more faithfully and deeply into this world that God has made, trusting that God will use us to make God's kingdom come more fully. Thanks be to God. Amen.